This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. They call you the grill master. You've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop. And as you lift that first forkful to your mouth, you savor the moment. To get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, like the 2019 C-Class Sedan and GLC SUV, the perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, now serving limited-time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. You are listening to On The Daily. The Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle of Fantasy Labs and Rotoviz. Welcome to the February 3rd, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Uh, Nick, we are just about a week away from the first race of the season uh how's it going oh man one week away i can't believe it um i guess by the time a lot of you listen to this it will be one week because uh sunday february 11th is the first race of the year it's the advanced auto parts clash at daytona the slate i've won two years in a row so Holy cow, one week. That is that is awesome, but it means I also have some work to do in terms of... Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Uh, getting this new app up and running and all that jazz, but it's a lot of fun. I, I love, love NASCAR DFS and... Uh, yeah, I'm excited. This is a this is a big episode. Yeah, it is. It's not just a big episode. It's the biggest. It's the most important NASCAR episode of the year. So this is the third time, I believe, that we've done it. Uh, each one just gets uh, bigger and better. So this is going to be, it's a long episode, but uh, it is so worth everyone's time to listen to it uh, because a lot of evergreen material uh, that we will refer to throughout the season. And we're just kind of going in some cases to, to take it as kind of common knowledge that people know certain things because they've listened to this episode. So a fantastic episode for everyone to listen to Nick, let's jump into it. Uh, for everyone who is new to NASCAR DFS, can you explain the rules and the general scoring system that DraftKings has used in the past? And let's hope that they don't change it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping they don't change it. Although if they do, uh, I do think Rotoviz readers and listeners and subscribers will have a big edge because we'll be right on top of all the scoring changes, optimizing all that stuff. Well, so that's true. Uh, Let's hope they change it. Yeah, actually, that might be a good point. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I, I think DraftKings, in terms of the way they've done it in the past, has been pretty good. Obviously, there's some cl- complaints about dominators being too important, and we'll talk about all that. But to explain the scoring system. In the past, DraftKings has used, um, just like all their other games, a $50,000 salary cap, and you get to pick six drivers. 
So as long as – and there's no different positions like NFL or NBA or, or any of that. You just pick six drivers, and you have to stay under the $50,000 salary cap. The scoring system uh, is such that there are kind of three ways to score points. One is what we call dominator points, um, and those are laps led and fastest laps. So the laps led is exactly what it sounds like. If a driver leads the race at the completion of a lap, he gets credited for that lap led. Uh, and so let's say there's 200 laps in a race, then there will be 200 laps led possible. Um, sometimes a little bit more if it, it goes ends up going into overtime, sometimes less if it ends up being rain shortened or weather shortened. But generally, the number of laps led is equal to the number of scheduled laps in the race. Um, then it, it, and I should say um, a quarter point is awarded, a quarter DraftKings point, so 0.25 points is awarded for leading each lap. Uh, for each lap a driver leads, I should say. So if a driver leads 100 laps, he'll get 25 points for laps led. Next is the other part of the dominator points is called fastest laps. And fastest laps can only occur under green flag conditions. So when the drivers are actually racing instead of under caution when um, they're driving slowly around the track and NASCAR is maybe cleaning up the track or, or, or other things are going on. So fastest laps can only happen under green flag conditions and for each lap that is run under green flag, whichever driver completed that lap the fastest gets awarded a fastest lap. Um, so, you know, on the very first lap of the race, whoever completes the lap the fastest gets credited for that fastest lap, and that is worth a half a point. And it goes the same way for each of those green flag laps. You get a half point. So if a driver completes 100 fastest laps, he'll get 50 points. So the laps led in the fastest laps together um, can be a maximum of three quarters of the number of laps. So if there's 200 laps total and a driver leads all 200 laps and it stays green the whole race and there's 200 fastest laps, then he's going to get 50 points for the fa uh, for the laps led and 100 points for the fastest laps. So that's 150 points. So three quarters of the number of laps is the maximum number of points you can score from dominator points. Now that basically never happens. Um, never really happens, actually. The last time a driver led every lap of the race was many, many years ago, uh, Jeff Burton at New Hampshire, over over a decade ago. So don't need to worry about that. But they, they are the dominator points. Um, usually, the, obviously, the leader of the race is, is getting a lot of those points, but also he's usually getting a lot of the fastest laps as well because he's leading, and so usually the leader is one of the fastest cars. The next kind of points are awarded for finishing position. Um, so DraftKings awards points on a 43 down to uh, one point basis, and that's because NASCAR used to race with 43 cars. So it used to be 43 points for first place, 42 points for second place, and so forth, all the way down to one point for 43rd place. Well, now there's a maximum of 40 cars, so it still goes 43 all the way down, but there's no one, two, and three points for 43rd, 42nd, and 41st. It just goes from 43 down to four points. Additionally, the winner of the race gets three bonus points on DraftKings scoring. So if the guy wins the race, he gets 43 points for finishing first, plus three bonus points for 46 points for finishing first. Everybody else, um, like I said, from second on down gets one fewer point. So 42 for second, 41 for third, and so forth. Then there's one other type of scoring, and it's called place differential. And this is the difference between the starting position and the finishing position. So if you take the starting position, if a driver starts, qualifies in 20th place and finishes in 10th place, then that is 20 minus 10 is 10. So you get 10 points for place differential. Uh, conversely, if a driver starts 
in fifth place and finishes in 20th place, then 5 minus 20 is negative 15, so your driver would lose 15 DraftKings points by going from starting 5th to starting 20th. So you can see it is advantageous to pick drivers that start further back if they can move forward. Um, obviously, if you pick drivers starting further forward, you're going to need them to stay farther forward uh, so they get those high finishing position points and do not lose points for place differential. And hopefully they also end up getting some fastest laps and laps led for the dominator points. So that's the main uh, rules behind DraftKings um, NASCAR DFS scoring system. Okay, Nick, you talked about uh, three different types of scoring. So dominator points, you mentioned uh, finishing position, you mentioned place differential. Uh, so obviously each race, each uh, track has a different number of laps. Can you talk about the importance of the three different types of scoring uh, relative to the number of laps uh, in a given race? Yeah, so like I mentioned, I gave an example for a 200-lap race, but NASCAR races on a lot of different track types, a lot of different track lengths, and has a lot of different race distances, 300-mile races, 500-mile races, a 600-mile race at Charlotte. And so that affects – so between the, the distance of the race and the size of the track, that affects the number of laps. There can be anywhere from uh, under – 90 laps, uh, I think, sorry, exactly 90 laps for the shortest race, which is one of the road course races um, at Watkins Glen, all the way up to 500 laps at a small track like Bristol or Martinsville. So obviously with, with a 100 lap race versus a 500 lap race, there is a vast amount of difference in the number of dominator points that are available. In a 500-lap race, of course, that means there are 250 maximum points for fastest laps. That, again, would be if the race stayed under green the whole way. And 125 uh, points available for laps led. So a lot of dominator points are available in those races that have a lot of laps. I mean, that's, that's 375 points maximum for dominator points. Uh, that's more than some... Winning lineups might score at lower races. Uh, so like at Watkins Glen, for example, the winning lineup, lineup might only be 325 points. But uh, at Bristol, the maximum number of dominator points is 375 points. So you can really see that the importance of dominators increases with race distance. However, it's nonlinear. So uh, when you're under 200 laps, the importance of dominators is relatively low. It's nice to get those dominator points. Um, however the the uh, number of dominator points can vary for the guy that has the most dominator points. And sometimes it can be as little as 20 or 40 or 60 dominator points instead of 100 or 120 or even up to 200 at some of the races that are 500 laps long. Um, the most number of dominator points we've seen since NASCAR started keeping loop data, which is, is the data they use to track all of this, is just under 220 DraftKings points for dominator points only. So that's incredibly important um, in terms of the number of laps led and the number of fastest laps. And like I said, it's nonlinear in terms of its importance. So from like uh, 90 laps to up to about 160, the importance of dominators is relatively low. Um, and that's because the 160 lap races like Indy, Pocono, um, and then the restrictor plate races can be around that race distance, 188 laps-ish, 200-ish, 160-ish, depending on the track and the race. Dominators tends to be of relatively low importance. Once you get to 200 laps, it tends to be um, that you'll need at least one, if not two dominators in your 
lineup for um, not only cash games, but also GPPs. And it really increases from there up until about you get maybe towards the 300, 350 lap threshold, like 333 lap threshold there. Um, it, it becomes in, increasingly important in a different linear fashion. Uh, so it's like almost like piecewise linear. And above 333 laps, we already know it's very important. It, the importance doesn't really change because the number of dominators and the highest dominators uh, really doesn't change a whole lot. So there's going to be two or three dominators that are very important to get in your lineup, regardless if it's a 333 lap race or a 500 lap race. Okay, fantastic stuff there. We obviously have much more to get to. Before that, I want to remind uh, everyone that you can get a 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content, and your subscription supports the pod. Uh, on the subject of the pod, I want to remind everyone also that Rotoviz Radio has just released a, a new podcast, Laying the Points, uh, with Anthony Miko and Matt Lamarca. Uh, it is a fantastic show in which they're going to be looking at uh, everything through a Vegas perspective. Uh, and so some of that obviously will be focused on football, uh, you know, futures uh, during the offseason and things like that. But then also I think they will be looking some at basketball, uh, maybe some at baseball, maybe some at uh, fights, you know, whatever it is. Uh, they're going to be looking at a lot of stuff through the, the Vegas perspective. So. Uh, the first episode of that came out last week. It was a great episode. I think everyone should uh, listen to it, especially because they touch on Super Bowl stuff. Uh, and speaking of the big game, uh, that show is sponsored by MyBookie, and MyBookie has a lot of prop bets that people should look at. Uh, I've been degening it up for basically the last week, just coming through uh, looking for tons of prop bets. Uh, my favorite one... Actually, I don't know if I could even say that this is my favorite one, but one of the ones that really sticks out in my mind is that there's one uh, that has to do with the first challenge, uh, which coach will throw the first challenge. It's you know negative 115 on both sides. Uh, Doug Peterson, the head coach for the Eagles, has uh, been much more likely than Bill Belichick the last couple of years to throw the challenge flag. So that's something that people might want to pay attention to, but just do your own research and just comb through all of the props that they have there. Uh, use the promo code laying the points that's specific for that pod, but uh, it, you know it's good for basically all of the Rotoviz radio pods. Uh, use that promo code to activate a 50% bonus that you get with your first time deposit. Uh, so that is mybookie.ag. Uh, you play, you win, you get paid. All right, Nick. Uh, we have so much to get to. This is such a fantastic episode. Uh, we're going to be talking now about the different track types. And so I think Nick is going to do a, a quicker type of overview here. But for people who want more information on that, I believe that Nick has covered that in a video course that he did uh, last season with JM to win of Roto Grinders. And he did that for Roto Academy. And you could check that course out at rotogrinders.com slash Roto Academy. Uh, Nick, let's start talking about the types of tracks. Um, take it away. Large ovals. Let's start there. Yeah. I mean, the other great thing about that video course is you get to see my pretty face. So definitely uh, check that out over yes, at Roto much, Academy. And, and <laughs> I'm not on it. So that really, That's right. you get like the best of both worlds. Hey, I wanted to ask you, are they going to be covering my prop bets that I do, like uh, staying off of Twitter or not drinking? Uh, my bookie? No, Anthony and uh, Lamarca. Oh, well, 
I mean, I guess they could create the uh, the market for that if, uh, if you're actually curious <laughs> about this. Love it. Um, yeah, so let's talk. First, before I talk about the large ovals, one other thing I did want to touch on on the number of laps uh, affecting the scoring distribution. Obviously, in the shorter lap races, that means the place differential and finishing position points become elevated in importance. And uh, so, for example, the first race this year, um, the the clash that we're going to talk about at Daytona, very few number of laps, so place differential is utmost important in that race. Uh, large ovals, so the large oval category is the bread and butter of NASCAR. Um, the vast majority, like you said, of, of the tracks, the races that we race at are large ovals. And these tracks are one and a half to two miles in length. And uh, they're really, like just like I said, um, just large ovals. They have a decent amount of banking. They're usually either uh, quad oval or tri oval in shape. And what I mean by that is they're kind of like a, a tri oval is more like D shaped. So you have a straight back stretch. You've got corners on each end of the track, and you've got a curved front stretch. So the track is shaped like a D, like the D in DraftKings. Uh, a quad oval, instead of a rounded part of the D, it's kind of like cornered off twice. Um, and so it's called a quad oval because. It, it really looks like a quadrangle, uh, the track does. Anyway, those are the different types of, of large ovals. But the large oval category, these races tend to be 400 or 500 miles. Uh, so the number of laps tend to be around 267 uh, to 330-something laps. The, the Coca-Cola 600 is 400 laps. And then the two tracks, the two two-mile ovals at, at Michigan and Auto Club Speedway, those are 200 lap races because they're 400 mile races at a two mile track. But uh, by and large, the the um, tracks are competitive, but uh, they do separate out the good from the bad cars. It's really hard for lesser funded teams, lesser funded cars to compete. And then there's kind of is usually a mid tier and then there's an elite tier of drivers uh, at these tracks. Now it, it can change from track to track type type, depending on if a team hits on a setup or not, but by and large, you will see a separation of speed and talent and, uh, car quality at these larger ovals. All right. Uh, let's start talking about the flat tracks. Oh, actually I should ask you this within the large oval category. There are three major features that impact the racing. Uh, so tire wear, banking and track size and width. Uh, can you talk about those? Yeah, so um, I'll just address each one of these really quickly. So tire wear is how quickly the tires degrade over the course of a run. So when I say a run, like um, if a driver drives 50 laps in a row, how quickly will those tires degrade and how much will it affect the performance? Usually that is highly correlated with the age of the surface. So if a track has not been resurfaced in many years, there will be it'll be more abrasive. It's gone under more weathering, more wear and tear, and it's more abrasive. Uh, a newer track will have a smoother track, which will um, be less abrasive to the tires. Tire wear affects things because when you have um, a lot of a lot of tire wear, drivers tend to be more careful. They tend to drive a little bit like on eggshells, and so I actually uh, have noticed there are fewer spinouts, despite the fact that the cars are harder to drive when the tires are worn. Um, drivers tend to drive a little bit more on eggshells and there tends to be fewer spin outs. The car isn't quite on the edge uh, in terms of aerodynamics because you're going two or three seconds a lap slower towards the middle and end of a run than you were at the beginning of a run. So they're not aerodynamically on the edge. They may be on the edge a little bit with grip, 
but drivers can compensate for that, uh, and they often do. At higher tire wear, or at lower tire wear tracks, where um, the difference between the beginning of the run and the end of the run isn't that much, maybe only a second, um, cars tend to be more on the edge aerodynamically, and if they step just a little bit over the edge aerodynamically, they can spin out. That said, it is usually harder to pass at these types of tracks as well with lower tire wear, just because um, everybody's tending to go the same speed and there's less difference in speed uh, because it's harder to wear out the tires. Whereas at a, at a high tire wear track, you can get a guy who's going two or three seconds slower than a guy on new tires or maybe who's preserved his tires a little bit better. So uh, a little bit harder to pass at high tire wear. Banking is uh, the angle at which the track uh, is, is banked in the corners and a higher banking allows for higher speeds, uh, whereas lower banking, you typically get lower speeds because the bank, the, the, the track when it's banked helps you turn, whereas if it's not banked, you have to do the, the car has to do the turning itself with more mechanical grip, uh, and that usually means you have to brake more or at least let off the gas more into the corners than at higher banking, and that affects different driving styles. So when we talk about the flat tracks and the steep tracks, we're going to talk about banking and how that plays a role, but that does play a role at uh, some of these large ovals as well. For example, Kentucky tends to be lower banked than the quad ovals like Charlotte. So um, banking plays a, a, a important factor. And then the size, as we talked about, Auto Club in Michigan are two mile tracks. They're very wide, uh, so it's a little bit easier to pass if you if you do have a better car, um, just because there are more lanes, more uh, available choices for racing and avoiding other cars instead of getting stuck behind them. Whereas if a track is narrower uh, or shorter, it becomes a little bit harder to pass. So it's really just about the, the difficulty of passing with the track size and width. Okay. Let's talk about flat tracks. And specifically, there are two different uh, subcategories, uh, the smaller ones and the larger ones. So talk about the flat tracks and then the difference uh, in terms of what that means for the smaller and larger flat tracks. Yeah, so flat tracks have low banking they uh, or no banking, depending on the track. Uh, but essentially there isn't as much angle in the corners to help the car turn. So the driver has to brake the car more, um, turn the car more. They need more mechanical grip uh, through the corners to turn the car. And that lends itself to a certain type of skill where you need to be good on and off the brakes, on and off the throttle, uh, and, and really pick your line. Line is more important at flat tracks because there's kind of an optimal racing line. Whereas at higher bank tracks, very often there's multiple lines of racing. Uh, like I talked about with the, the wide tracks, uh, flat tracks or, or more higher bank can also tend to give multiple lines of racing. But flat tracks, there tends to be one line of racing, sometimes not depending on the track, but uh, generally requires a certain skill set. So you'll see certain drivers excel at flat tracks, guys like AJ Allmendinger, Danny Hamlin, for example, are two guys that come to mind at flat tracks, Kevin Harvick as well. You, like you mentioned, there's the larger and the smaller flat tracks. So the four smaller flat tracks are Martinsville, New Hampshire, Richmond, and Phoenix. And these are uh, important because when the track is shorter, so a mile or less, horsepower doesn't matter as much. Uh, and, and so the cars can be a little bit closer together. The racing can be a little bit more competitive. There can be more beating and banging, bumping, and, and, and all that in the corners. So it does tend to produce a different type of racing than the larger flat tracks. Uh, the smaller flat tracks, there could be a lot of cars that get a lap down or multiple laps down. And then strategy is a little different when that happens than at the larger flat tracks. The two larger flat tracks are Indianapolis and Pocono. And these tracks are interesting because 
Uh, they're both two and a half miles long. And you can actually, if you're near the leader, you can pit, go into the pit stop. You have to drive at a speed limit in the pit lane while the, all the other cars on the track get to go as fast as they can. And then you have to come out of the pits. But you can do that without the leader making a full lap and passing you at the larger flat tracks. Whereas at the smaller flat tracks, you're going to go at least one, if not two or three laps down when you pit, depending on the track. For example, Martinsville, you could even go three laps down if you have a slow enough pit stop and you're not close enough to the leader. So it changes the strategy. Teams will pit differently there. There's more possibility for uh, a differing number of dominators or fastest lap guys because of different tire wear strategies and so forth. Uh, and it, there tends to be fewer crashes at these tracks as well, just because it's what these tracks are wider and longer. Also, it does separate out often the good from the bad because of higher horsepower needed to make these really large tracks. So different kinds of racing at the small and the large flat tracks. But the one thing that is consistent between the two is the ability to get in the corner and braking and back on the throttle. Okay. Steep tracks. Uh, tell us about the steep tracks. Yeah, so the steep tracks are fun because, as I mentioned, there's usually multiple lines of racing. Um, not always, but usually. And uh, they require a different kind of talent. Um, guys like Kyle Larson really love the steep tracks. They can ride the car all the way out near the wall. They like a loose race car. They're aggressive. You can really attack these tracks because the tracks help you turn as well. So um, they, they tend to produce... Very good racing because of the multiple lines, uh, but again, they they play to a different style of driver than the flat tracks. These are more about momentum, about keeping your speed through the corners, and about understanding how the different lines of racing work at the steep tracks, uh, really being aggressive and attacking them in a different way than you have to be aggressive with the flat tracks in terms of braking and throttle. So uh, definitely a different type of racing. There are four steep tracks. Uh, Bristol and Dover are the two concrete steep tracks. And then Homestead and Darlington are the two asphalt steep tracks. The difference between concrete and asphalt, uh, concrete tends to be you know, closer to a white color. It's more like a, like a beige or an off-white or something like that. But it's important because it reflects sunlight instead of absorbing the sunlight. So if a cloud comes, uh, the track doesn't really change as much in terms of temperature. So it's more consistent. So a driver uh, that has a good car will tend to have a good car throughout the whole week. Uh, at a concrete track, whereas uh, at an asphalt track like Homestead or, or Darlington, especially if you get a night, a race like Darlington where it goes from the day into the night, the track can really change. Uh, it could be hot and slick during the day. If a cloud comes, it could, it could change the handling properties. Uh, if it goes in the night, then it, it races more differently as well. It gets more tight. Uh, so the cars become a little tighter and they really race differently. So the the ability to uh, adapt to different conditions matters more at the asphalt steep tracks. Hey, sports fans, football season's here, and it's time to get in on the action with MyBookie. MyBookie is the industry-leading sports betting website that offers real Vegas odds on football, baseball, and all your favorite sporting events. You can take a side, the total, or even fantasy points props. MyBookie lets you bet online and win big. Did the game already kick off? Don't sweat it. MyBookie has in-game live betting on every major league and event, even eSports. There's no better time to join MyBookie than today. Go to MyBookie to open an account and start winning. Use promo code CHAMPION when you register for your account and get a 100% sign-up bonus up to $1,000 on your first deposit. Bet today. 
Visit MyBookie's website or call 844-866-2387. That's 844-866-2387. Check them out today and use promo code CHAMPION for a 100% bonus. Terms and conditions apply for entertainment purposes only. Void where prohibited. Okay, finally, let's talk about the restrictor plates. Uh, these are some of our favorite uh, races of the season, so definitely uh, looking forward to what you have to say about these. Yeah, so the restrictor plate races are great. Obviously, we're going to start the season next week with a restrictor plate race for the Clash at Daytona, and then the following weekend with the Daytona 500. Also, in between, in the middle of the week, we're going to have the dual races, which are qualifying races for the Daytona 500, and DraftKings each of the past year has done slates for those. So right off the bat, we're going to get the restrictor plate races under our belts. Uh, restrictor plate races are fun because what the tracks are so big – two and a half miles or larger and the two tracks are Daytona and Talladega and they're highly banked. Whereas the, the two and a half mile tracks of Indianapolis and Pocono are flat, but the higher banking means you can carry more speed into the corners. So these tracks could race extremely, extremely, extremely fast to keep the speeds down and keep it a little bit safer. NASCAR uh, air quote safer. There can be some debate about that, but uh, NASCAR slaps what is called a restrictor plate in the engine. And so essentially it's a, it's a metal plate that has holes that are cut open and restricts the airflow to the engine, limits the horsepower and limits the top speed of the cars. As a result, all the cars go the same speed essentially. Uh, and so there's little difference between the worst car and the best car because they're all going essentially as fast as uh, the next car, as fast as they can with this limitation from the plate. What that does is it means all the cars run in a big pack and when there's a big pack, the draft plays an important role as well. Uh, the, the front car is pushing the air out of the way, and the cars behind them don't have that air resistance, so they actually have uh, less pressure to, to push through in the air, and they can go faster, so they can suck up the car behind them. But then they can also push that car forward as well, so the cars actually go faster together in the draft than when they're running individually. What that does, it, it, because everybody's running in a huge pack, uh, there can be a lot of passing cars can go from the back to the front or the front to the back in just a handful of, of corners, if not laps. Uh, and the other thing about racing that close together is if one driver makes a mistake, uh, it could take out a lot of cars because they're all racing right next to each other. So he gets what's called the big one, very big crashes. And these definitely happen at the restricted plate races when you're going for a win, um, when when things are on the line. So definitely Daytona, you'll see a lot of crashes. I know uh, the race at Talladega during the playoffs, a lot of drivers contending for a win or playoff position points. So um, you can see big crashes there. But really all the restricted plate races, you can see a, a high number of crashes or cars taken out. And what that does is it allows all the cars in the back to make up a lot of place differential. There's fewer uh, number of laps because the track is so big and there's fewer drivers that dominate the race. There might not even be a dominator because of the ability to pass so easily and stay in a pack and shuffle. So uh, at restrictor plate races, place differential is king. Okay, the road courses, we have two of them, I believe. Talk about them. Yeah, actually this year we have three road courses and that's because... That's what yeah. I get for just speaking extemporaneously as if I know something. That's right. So NASCAR this year has added a third road course. The uh, They used to have two races at Charlotte. Well, they still do, but they were both the oval races. This year, NASCAR has changed the second Charlotte race, which is the one during the playoffs, to the Roval. So it's the part, they race part of the oval 
and then they race the infield road course. So it's called a Roval. Technically, it falls in the road course category, but it will race like a road course for the most part. So you'll see drivers uh, who have road course talent probably come forward in those as well, although it'll be interesting because they do race part of the oval. Handling could be an issue uh, in aerodynamics as well. So it's definitely going to be a unique track. But the other two besides the Charlotte Roval are Watkins Glen and Sonoma uh used to be called Infineon or Sears Point, a lot of different past names, but I think they call it Sonoma now. Uh, those two road course races are the traditional two from NASCAR. They're shorter in distance. Uh, I think Sonoma's about 110 laps, and, and Watkins Glen's only about 90 laps. And they require a very specific skill set, kind of like flat tracks. They require getting on the brakes, on and off the throttle, but a lot more shifting through the gears, taking different lines through corners, both right turns and left turns, amazingly enough, or sorry, left turns and right turns, amazingly enough, the only tracks they, they turn right at, unless you're turning into the wall, which is not a good thing. But uh, so definitely a unique skill set, and you see a certain type of driver excel at these. There are some drivers that struggle with road courses, uh, and because of the shorter number of laps, dominators, and because just of the unique style of racing, the unique strategy, dominators tend to be of low importance there, place differential and finishing position king at the road courses. Okay, so there are two major contest types, cash games and tournaments. Uh, let's start with cash game strategy. What are the major pillars of cash game strategy that you employ for the majority of races? Yeah, so uh, the vast majority of the races, like I, I said, there are the races that are 200 laps or more where dominators become more and more increasingly important. And so in the bulk of these races, we'll be trying to focus on two major driver types. The first is the dominators. Uh, obviously, with 300, 500, 400, 250 laps, there's a lot of points out there for fastest laps and laps led. And so to get these drivers into your cash game lineup really elevates not only your ceiling, but also your floor. Um, and the reason it's important, like I said, the reason it elevates your floor as well, is if you pick multiple drivers that have the potential to dominate then if you hit on one or two of these, you're much more likely to increase your score quite significantly and beat a lot of the field uh, that you're competing against for cash games. So picking multiple dominators is a great way to elevate your floor. The issue with that, and there's a balance here, is these drivers tend to start further forward. So they qualify first, second, third, fifth, you know, in the top five or six, sometimes eight, 10, 12 places, depending on if they had a bad qualifying or whatever. But they tend to start further forward, so there's more risk there if they don't dominate because they have to also finish highly if they don't dominate just to kind of return a basic number of finishing position points. Like in the 40s, number of finishing position points will probably pick up a few fastest laps, but they don't really return the 80, 100, 150 points that you would get from dominating. And it's also very easy if they fall outside of the top 5 or 10 to get negative place differential and only score you 20 or 30 points and really crush your cash game lineup. So it's a balance on identifying the dominators, identifying the right number of dominators to choose for your lineup to increase your floor without increasing your risk. The other type, uh, so the next pillar outside of the dominators is really finding high floor drivers. And the way you find a high floor is by looking at starting position. Obviously, if you start dead last in 40th place, you cannot get negative place differential. You can only either get zero or positive place differential because the worst you can finish is also 40th. So 40 minus 40 is zero. Uh, 
So the, to get a higher floor, you pick drivers starting further back. And if you find good drivers that start further back, they have the potential to move up a large number of positions, give you a very large number of points from place differential, a good number of points from finishing position, and they could pick up some dominator points here or there, depending on the track, the race, how it plays out, etc. So uh, the next pillar is really identifying these high floor drivers. So dominators, high floor drivers, and then sometimes you kind of just have to fill your out your lineup. If you maybe got five, four or five of your spots filled out, you might need to move on to a different type of driver. But by and large, you're looking for the dominators and the high floor drivers. Okay, can you talk a little bit about the number of laps and how that impacts the strategy that you use for a given race uh, when it comes to cash games? Certainly. So, like I said, the vast majority of the races we're going to be looking for uh, dominators in our cash game lineups, and with 500 laps uh, or 334 laps or whatever, it's much more important to get those dominators in your cash game lineup than in a race with 160 laps. Uh, so, and that's just because when a guy does dominate, he's going to score 150, something like that points in these really long races. And if you miss out on that, there's basically no way you can cash in these double ups. So, uh, you're going to take more shots at dominators in races with more laps and fewer shots at dominators in your cash game lineups in races with fewer laps. So for example, um, you know, at the road course races, I might not even pick drivers that could dominate the race. Um, I might pick a driver who's starting 10th, who has the ability to finish in the top three or five, because that's safer than picking a driver who's third or second or first, but could fall back through strategy and the way the race plays out. So um, you still want to try to accumulate driver point, uh, dominator points where you can in these, but it's less imperative as the uh, number of laps decreases. Okay, so moving from the number of laps, you've talked about the importance of dominators and uh, the uh, or movers, the guys who uh, move up from further back in the, the race to further up. Uh, what stats do you use to identify uh, each of those different types of drivers for your cash game lineups? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of different things. I'll start with the movers because uh, I think this is pretty interesting. But uh, a really important way to find movers is to look at uh, their driver rating from the year as well as their quality pass percentage from the year and then do the same for the track type that they're at. So if they're at a large oval or if they're at a steep track, then you look at their driver rating from the steep tracks that year or maybe if it's early in the year back into the prior year uh, and figure out which drivers are good at these steep tracks or these flat tracks, depending on where they're racing, good at that track type as well as just being very good overall recently. So again, in the beginning of the year, instead of looking at this year's stats, you're going to look at maybe the second half of last year uh, and, and check out their stats from the second half of last year. So this is great because if you find a driver who's starting 24th or 28th and he really has a top 8 or 10 or 12 driver rating and then uh, the, during the year and maybe a top 8 or 12 driver rating at that track, you know he is a driver that has a very good potential to move forward. So we look at driver rating. We look at uh, uh, quality pass percentage because we want these drivers to be able to make passes and get forward. There is a high correlation between driver rating and quality pass percentage, but they're not perfectly correlated. So I look looking at both of those. Then if there's a tiebreaker between you know two drivers with similar driver rating, I'll pick the one with a better quality pass percentage. Uh, but really, you want to be looking at drivers starting further back who are very good uh, for the track the track type 
and uh, the season in general. That's how you choose your movers. For your dominators, a little bit different. Um, you want to usually look at dominance. Uh, so instead of just driver rating, you also want to look at the ability to dominate. Uh, and so that means leading laps, getting fastest laps. So again, you're going to look at how they're doing at that track, at that track type and in the year. But instead of just looking at driver rating, you're also going to look at their dominator history at these tracks, track types, and, and during the year. Uh, so laps led fastest laps. Um, and I usually do it by a percentage of the race led. So if a driver if a race is 300 laps and he leads 100 laps, he led 33% of the race. So you're going to look at their lap led percentage and their fastest lap percentage. And if those are higher, then the driver is more likely to be a dominator. Now, of course, uh, we want to... Uh, also have these guys usually starting further forward because it's a lot easier to dominate the race if you're starting towards the front than if you're starting towards the middle of the pack or the back and you have to drive through the field. So very often we're picking drivers starting on the pole, maybe second. Sometimes we'll even pick the drivers starting first and second because we're almost surely going to guarantee ourselves the early laps led and the early fastest laps. Uh, so that is a great way for cash game lineups. But Really, especially as the season goes on, you kind of figure out who the dominant drivers are. And those are the guys you tend to go back to for your cash game lineups throughout the year. Okay, the Rotoviz tools that you use for your cash game lineup uh, research, what are those and how do you use them? Yeah, so um, I tend to ignore things like ownership percentage for cash game. And what I really want to do is put out an optimized lineup, the lineup that has the highest average score if we were to run the race over you know, 10,000 tries. And so to do that, you have to create projections. Uh, and, and then from those projections, you need to pick the optimal combination of six drivers that A, fits under the salary cap, and B, uh, gives you the highest average projection. And so a way to do that was with the Rotoviz Optimizer. It's a lineup optimizer. And uh, if, if I'll automatically import the uh, projections I create every week from my model into the optimizer, you can click go and it'll spit out a default lineup. Now, sometimes it's a little wonky because uh, with projecting dominance, it tends to, uh, I guess, under project dominance a little bit just because, you know, the median versus the mean in terms of dominator is a little bit different. Also, it's much harder to predict dominators than it is to predict finishing position. We get higher R squares with finishing position than we do with dominators. So, I will make tweaks to the optimizer, but it's a great place to start. To really identify the dominator, uh, the, my favorite tool is the Rotoviz NASCAR SimScore app. Uh, and this is a really cool app, and we'll talk about the nuts and bolts of it later. But essentially, it lets you see a high, median, and low projection for finishing position, for percentage of laps led, and for percentage of fastest laps for that driver at that track based off of his stats uh, and, and stats of comparable drivers in the past. And, and I really like using this, especially for the dominators, to see what is their probability of dominating, or at least their ceiling in terms of laps led and fastest laps and median. Um, I'm not so much worried about floor, but it is nice if a driver has a high floor for dominance as well, because then you know you're almost surely going to get some dominator points out of them. But I think that's the best tool for finding the range of outcomes of likely dominance. Okay, let's start talking about uh, guaranteed prize pools. Uh, so the key to winning a GPP is constructing a lineup that has a lot of upside. So let's talk about how to identify upside. Uh, where's the first place you start when you're looking for drivers who have the potential to contribute to a GPP winning lineup? Yeah, you kind of have to start in a similar place with cash games. 
and go into those dominators there because like I said with cash games, if you pick three or four potential dominators and you hit on two or three of them, you're going to get a lot of points and do really well in cash games. It's similar for GPPs. These guys are going to get you 120, 150, 80, 90 points in these, uh, you know, in these races if they do end up dominating. And that is upside as well. The difference is you, you don't want to uh, have some negative correlation there by picking too many potential dominator candidates. So if a race is only likely to produce two dominators and you start picking three or four possible dominators that are starting far forward, usually only two are going to dominate the race. And the other two kind of go to waste uh, because they don't get dominator points. They don't get place differential. You're really relying on them to finish up front as the only method of upside. So you can actually create negative correlation by picking too many dominators in your GPP lineups, but they do give you upside. Uh, and the difference versus cash from cash and GPPs with dominators is you can increase your floor uh, dominator floor in cash games by picking more, but you actually decrease your upside by picking more. So you want to pick the right number of dominators for each race, two or three in most races, sometimes one or zero, depending if it's, you know, a shorter race or a track that produces fewer dominators. And sometimes uh, there could be like four drivers that dominate and then you have to go with two like really cheap drivers and uh, that could be a winning lineup construction as well. But uh, really track dependent, race dependent, race length dependent, but dominators are where you start in GPPs for upside. Okay, so you just mentioned dominators as being uh, the most important drivers to identify for GPPs. Uh, is the process similar to cash games or are there differences in how you identify those dominators? Yeah, so so I talked about how the, the process is different in terms of floor and ceiling and the number, but in terms of identifying the dominators uh, with stats, I basically use the same thing. I use the Rotoviz NASCAR SimScore app, but I, instead of focusing on maybe median and floor and ceiling, I more just focus on ceiling for my dominance. Uh, what is their dominator ceiling in laps led and fastest laps? Uh, a little bit you can focus on finishing position as well, but you really want to be focusing on the laps led and fastest laps because if a driver hits his ceiling projection or near his ceiling projection, uh, that's going to be great for your lineup. So it could be a tiebreaker between a couple drivers with a similar you know, finishing position projection would be what is their potential for dominance. So I definitely use the SimScore app there. Obviously, a lot of those same stats will go into identifying the dominators that we talked about with cash games in terms of past laps led, past fastest laps at the track or at the track type. But uh, I really like using the sim scores because you can find similar drivers and their number of, of, of you know laps led and fastest laps in the past. Uh, okay, so let's talk about movers. Um, what is the next step in your approach to identifying upside? Yeah, that's, that's identifying the mover. So just like with cash games where you find those drivers who are starting in the back with a high floor, these movers are, are these uh, drivers who start in the back are of particular importance because they have a high potential for place differential. They move from the back to the front of the field, so they can start 28th, but they have the ability to finish inside that top 10. That's what we call a mover. A driver who starts 28th and only has the ability to finish 20th or something like that is not a mover. He's not moving through the whole field. Uh, so the movers are the next most important because you get two types of positive scoring: finishing position if they finish high, and a lot of place differential. They move from 28 to 8. That's plus 20. That's going to give you another 20 points right there. So the movers give you the second most upside, and uh, they have essentially you can find what's called a replacement level driver. They give you a lot of points above a replacement level driver in terms of DraftKings points. So they give you the second most upside in uh, DraftKings GPPs. So after the dominators, 
you're going to try to fit in movers into your lineup. Okay, so movers, they often have higher ownership. Uh, so how do you pivot away from movers? And then what are the tools that you use to identify the movers and then also the potential pivot plays? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing here because, like you said, in, in cash games, we love movers. Um, they're very safe. They also provide a lot of upside. But knowing that they're A, safe, and B, provide a lot of upside – they're going to be the drivers that naturally people gravitate to for selection in GPPs. And if they don't meet expectation or they underperform a little bit, then that is a large chunk of the field that has exposure to these drivers that will not have the requisite upside. And NASCAR is a pretty variant sport, so uh, it does make sense to pay attention to ownership percentage. We do ownership percentage projections at Rotoviz each year. They're quite accurate. Uh, or each race, I should say, they're quite accurate. Uh, so that's one place to start. And it's interesting because projecting what the market will do is easier than projecting the outcome of the race. So if I can project what all of my competitors will do in DFS roster selection, that is a lot easier to predict than what the driver will do in the race. So if we can get an accurate ownership percentage projection and then assign a probability that a driver will meet his upside or not meet his upside, we can either be underweight or overweight on that driver in multi-entries. Or if we're just doing a single entry, we can pick a drivers to avoid or choose. So we want to choose maybe a lower ownership guy who he might have a lower median projection, maybe even a, a worse floor. But if he has a similar ceiling then, or, or even just a slightly lower ceiling, but the ownership percentage difference is going to be 20 percentage points. You know, instead of 30% owned, it'll be 10% owned. And it's a very, very similar ceiling uh, in terms of finishing position, but also DraftKings points. We're definitely going to want to uh, pivot off of the higher owned guy to the lower owned guy in a single entry GPP. Or for multi-entering, we're going to be want to be underweight instead of overweight on one on the on the 30% uh, guy, and then we're going to want to be overweight on maybe the 10% guy. Uh, and and so. That's kind of how you do it uh, in terms of pivoting. So the, the type of driver, um, these are drivers that I like to call contenders. Maybe they can uh, you know, kind of instead of starting from the back to the front, they start in the middle of the field. Maybe they start 18th or 16th and they can move into that top 10 uh, and they'll get you very similar number of points uh, to a driver who starts you know, 24th and moves into the top 10. But it might be like six or eight fewer points. But if that driver who does start 24th, crashes out or only finishes 20th because of something happening, then uh, they're not going to help you. And that guy who starts 18th and finishes 8th will help you. So those are the drivers that we tend to pivot towards. Um, occasionally, we pivot towards some guys who start in the 20s and only can finish maybe like 12th. Uh, but those are a kind of a different type of driver. I usually look towards the contenders because those are the guys that are more reliable, can finish higher, and uh, occasionally can pull off some dominator points as well. Okay, so you've talked about dominators, movers, and contenders. What are the other types of drivers? Yeah, so the, the other types of drivers, um, there, there are, I guess, really like three types of drivers, the front runners. So these are drivers that start towards the front and race, basically the whole race near the front of the race. So if you start inside the top 10, you, know, you start eighth and you finish sixth, that's good. You got a very nice finishing position, but you only get two points for place differential if you go from eighth to sixth. So it's harder to get upside. Uh, these are guys you can still use in your lineups depending on the way the rest of your roster construction goes. Um, but I tend to 
use these guys you know, at a pretty low level. Um, another type of driver is what we call the Joe Dirt Cheap Movers. These are the guys I talked about that maybe start 28th and can move up to like 15th or there are drivers who are even cheaper, uh, the real Joe Dirt cheap drivers, who start in the 30s and kind of move up into the 20s as the race goes on, usually through attrition if other drivers are crashing out or having problems, or maybe they just uh, actually have a good car at that race or it's a good track for them or something like that. These drivers, like I said, are cheaper on DraftKings, uh, and but they do have less in ter- you know, overall upside because they're only moving into the 20s or maybe the late teens uh, in finishing position. And, uh, you know, obviously they, they're cheaper, but both the front runners and the, you know, the, either the Joe Dirt movers or kind of the salary relief movers, if you, if you want to go a little bit above the Joe Dirt cheap tier, they produce about 45 um, DraftKings points above, you know, or I should say 45 DraftKings points on average, which is right around a replacement level driver. So uh, both of these upsides are similar the final is just the guys you're never going to use the joder cheap drivers who don't really have much potential or um guys in the middle of the field who more likely to go backward than forward i just lump them all together because you're usually not using these drivers um but uh yeah so the order of operations uh so to speak in nascar is the dominators the movers the contenders and then kind of lumping together the front runners and the, and the salary relief or the Joe Dirt movers together because they give you uh, approximately the same number of points. I'm assuming that because the Joe Dirt movers are cheaper and they provide salary relief that you would prior, prioritize those over the front runners. Yeah, uh, I definitely I think that that makes a lot of sense because you're also trying to fit in dominators and dominators are usually very expensive. And a great way to fit in another dominator, especially at a track with a lot more laps, is to get a salary relief guy, a Joe Dirt cheap driver that can pick you up some positions. And they also, funny enough, tend to have about the same ownership percentage as front runners. Not always, um, but usually, you know, if a driver is starting 10th and is a well-known name, he'll still draw 10, 15, 20% ownership sometimes versus a guy who starts 35th and is a Joe Dirt cheap driver uh, you know, probably also will draw maybe on a, on a good day if they're a, a kind of a popular name that week, 15, 20% ownership as well. Sometimes a lot less, occasionally more. We've seen some, some Joder drivers get in the thirties and ownership percentages, but by and large, because they're cheaper, they're lower owned there and they produce approximately the same number of points as a front runner. I'm going to, if I had to choose between the two, I'm obviously going to pick the Joder cheap driver. Now that said, both of the categories of these drivers are usually, uh, where I'm, filling out my roster instead of starting my roster with. So uh, I kind of just between these two will pick whatever makes sense with my roster construction from my other four or five drivers I picked. Okay. Well, how do you separate the Joe Dirt drivers who actually have potential from the Joe Dirt drivers who are likely to suck for the race? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Really two major things. One uh, starting position. So if a Joe Dirt driver starting 36th versus starting 30th, Uh, That could be very different um, in terms of place differential potential. The second thing, of course, is how good are they at that track or track type? We see this a lot. David Reagan, very good at road courses, some of the flat tracks. Drivers like Matthew Benedetto, great at the steep tracks. So uh, certainly the track makes a lot of sense as well. But by and large, the overriding factor, even on track ability and track success, uh, and this goes for all movers, not just the Joe movers, is how have they been practicing? Uh, we haven't really talked much about practice, but if a driver is practicing many positions better than his starting position, 
that's a good indication that they're likely to move forward in the race because they actually have a faster car than where they're starting. So if you see a driver qualified 28th is practicing 15th, not just on single lap, but in 10 lap average or over the long run, very good indicator they're going to move forward. Uh, same with the Joe Dirt cheap drivers. If you see a driver's qualified 35th, but he somehow has been practicing 29th for multiple practice sessions and, and maybe made a 10 lap average, usually they're pretty happy with the car then. They're faster than the other guys, so they can move forward. So all movers you want to be looking at practice, but again, faster practices highly correlate with higher ownership percentage. So in GPP, there is some theory around fading practice a little bit, especially at places where either single lap or 10 lap averages may not be indicative of race performance as much as uh, other tracks. Okay, well, let's uh, keep talking about GPPs, but talk about game theory a little bit. So cash games, what you're really looking for is that optimized lineup. Uh, for GPPs, it's very dependent on what the market is doing. Can you talk about just game theory in general and how you are applying it to NASCAR DFS tournaments? Yeah, so um, what I'd like to do is, is I'd like to look at distributions. What is the distribution for a driver's finishing position? What is the distribution for his dominator uh, potential? All of that will inform your decision-making because we want to look at the upside portion of that distribution. What's the probability he dominates? What's the probability this guy makes up at least 15 places on the track to, to be in a winning lineup, you know, with a lot of place differential. What's the probability of these different things happening? So everything, all drivers have a distribution. If we were to run the race a hundred times over or a thousand or 10,000 times over, it wouldn't play out the same way every single time. So we want to take probabilities and look at upside probabilities. So we're really focusing on upside. We're really focusing on the probability they achieve their upside and then comparing that to ownership percentage. So if a driver has a 30% chance of being in the winning lineup, and he's only going to be 20% owned because we can project ownership percentage more accurately, this is a driver we're going to want to go overweight on. Whereas, you know, if a driver is going to be 40% owned and he only has a 25% probability of being in the winning lineup, then this is a driver we're going to want to go underweight on. And like you said, we're very good at projecting the market, it's much harder to project uh, pinpoint accuracy, a finishing position. We can definitely project the distribution, and that is going to inform what we should do relative to the market. So uh, that said, you know, I can project ownership percentages. Uh, maybe a guy is projected to be 40% owners owned, but it could be really anywhere from you know 25 or 30% to up to 50 or 55% because there is some error in the ownership percentage projection as well. You can't predict all of the ownership percentages perfectly, but we do a very good job of that. And it's easier to project the market than it is to project driver finishing positions. It's all about distributions and then understanding how the distribution fits with the ownership percentage. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about ownership. Uh, so last year, Rotoviz put out ownership projections for each race. Uh, by and large, these were very accurate. How do you use ownership projections in combination with the other Rotoviz tools to build a complete tournament lineup? Yeah, um, I think uh, the, the, a couple of the things here, the ownership proje percentage projections are, are so important because, like I said, you can see if a guy is projected to be 35% owned, you know, it'll probably be in the 25 to 45 range if, you know, if we're being safe. Uh, it could even be tighter than that. And if you look at his, for example, the, the NASCAR SimScores app, and you see his range of outcomes, you can kind of get an idea of the distribution. It might be skewed towards one side or the other, 
in terms of upside or downside, depending on the driver, the track, the race. But you can really get an idea of a driver's upside. So if you can find some drivers with hidden upside who have maybe a low ownership percentage projection, these are great drivers to go overweight on or to, if you're single entering, use them instead of a more popular driver who maybe might have slightly more upside, but it's pretty close. Like I, like I was talking about earlier with the contenders versus the movers, you might have similar upside. It might be slightly less for contenders, but the ownership percentage is far greater in terms of difference because we think we're more, uh, we think we're more informed than we actually are and how a driver will do. So uh, that is really, you know, my main way of, of, of projecting. Now that said, uh, the, the SimScore app isn't the only thing. I do like to look at the average projection of a driver, not just in, in finishing position or in DraftKings points, but also in dominators. Um, and really just trying to understand the possible different ways a race can play out. Or is it possible we could see four dominators instead of three or two? Uh, what are the potential options for the start of the race? All of these things come into play when I'm making a lineup. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, as I talked about the tools there, the SimScore app, um, you can use the NASCAR Splits app, which I think is great for identifying a driver's history at a track or track type. So if you go to the NASCAR Splits app, which is rotaviz.com slash NASCAR hyphen splits, uh, you can filter all of the large oval races if we're racing at a large oval or filter only the flat track races if we're racing a flat track. Or you can even just pick the smaller flat tracks if we're racing at a track like you know Martinsville or, or New Hampshire, Phoenix, etc. Uh, and it's a great way to identify which drivers have done well at a certain track or track type. Um, finally, of course, you can use the optimizer to uh, do a bunch of different things. What's really cool about the optimizer in terms of making a lineup is you can favor a driver. So if you have a driver who's maybe projected with a little less upside, um, but uh, also a lot more reduction in ownership percentage, then he's a driver you really want to use in your lineups. You can click the favorite button, or you can change his projection, or you can change the minimum ownership percentage you want to give him. All of these things you can do in the optimizer, and that will get you your, your preferred driver that you might want to be overweight on into your lineup, or you can reduce the max percentage of a driver you want to go underweight on or reduce his projection or eliminate him completely if you want from your lineups as well. So all of these things together are great, but I definitely uh, use, you know, the splits, sorry, the SimScores app to really inform my distributions. Okay. So uh, you talked about a number of tools there, the model projections and the NASCAR SimScores, uh, they seem to be the most important of the tools. Can you talk more about uh, what actually goes into those two uh, those two tools that you use? Sure. So we'll start with the model projections, which are always a big hit. Uh, every week I project the average score for a driver, whether it's uh, you know the average finishing position, the average number of laps led, fastest laps, and then roll that into an average number of DraftKings points. So that's what happens on average. I use a highly sophisticated statistical model uh, that's validated and proven to be as accurate as possible. Uh, and those get imported is the default projections for the optimizer. Um, from there, of course, you don't want to just use the same projections that everybody's using in the optimizer because then you'll get the same lineups as everyone. But it's a great starting point. And the reason the model is so good or so important is because of its accuracy. Uh, like I said, I use I try to find the best variables to build the model off of. So, you know, does practice more at certain tracks than others? I'm not going to use practice in the model if it's not indicative of finishing position. So, for example, at these restrictor plate race tracks at Daytona for the next couple of weeks, 
practice is going to be largely irrelevant. So why would I put practice into a model if it's not going to be accurate in helping us find uh, finishing position or, or performance for a driver or DraftKings points? So um, that's what I do. I, I pick and choose all the variables and I have a process. There's a, a statistical process for going about choosing these variables. Do I want to use the last eight races at a certain track or do I want to use the last eight races at the track type instead? All of this is done through a process that is intended to make the model the most accurate possible. That said, these are average projections, and we know that a driver can beat his average or go under his average. And again, these are these distributions aren't even normally distributed. Uh, so if a driver, you know, usually doesn't dominate, but then he does have a race where he dominates 150 laps. It's going to overinflate his his dominator projection because five races he'll lead zero laps and then the sixth race he'll lead 100 laps. So it's going to say, you know, he led an average of 16 laps, but most of the time he's going to lead zero. So it can be a little misleading. And that's where we go to, like I said, the Sim Scores app that you, you know, mentioned and I've been talking a lot about. And the way the Sim Scores app works is very interesting. We actually started with Sim Scores. Uh, what we call the Gillespie projections, game level similarity projections on our NFL side. Uh, and so Fantasy Douche, who, who used to own Road of his, created these apps. And essentially what they did is they took uh, a player's statistics. So let's say you had um, a quarterback like, uh, oh, I don't know, Tom Brady maybe. And uh, you looked at Tom Brady's performance over the last X number of games. And you said, what other quarterbacks have had similar stats to Tom Brady over his last same X number of games? So maybe it's Peyton Manning from 2012 or something like that had similar statistics to Tom Brady in 2017. And then you can say, well, what now Tom Brady's going to be facing the New York Jets? What defenses when Peyton Manning had those stats back in 2012 did he face that were similar to the New York Jets defense? And you can get defensive statistics as well. And a couple other variables, maybe the total of the, of the game, the spread, and you say, we've got similar players facing similar defenses. What was their performance range of outcomes in those 20 most similar uh, game level situations? We do the same thing in NASCAR, but instead of a defense, what you're really competing against is the other, not the other drivers, but you're kind of competing against the track. You're trying to finish as high as you can. So we say, what similar drivers, let's, let's take um, Trevor Bain, for example, our favorite guy, Trevor Bain. What drivers in the past have similar statistics to Trevor Bain at the current track and the current track type? Uh, and, you know, we can look at all of those drivers with the most similar statistics to Trevor Bain and then say when they raced at this track or at similar tracks, because there are tracks that have, uh, you know, like in the past, Charlotte and Texas Motor Speedway in Atlanta, they're all the same size and shape, but they have different tire wear. Um, so maybe if we're at Char or sorry, at Texas, we'd get a lot of similar comparisons to Atlanta. So we can pick out how Trevor Bain or drivers similar to Trevor Bain performed at Texas and tracks similar to Texas like Atlanta. And I might pull in something else. It could pull in, for example, an auto club speedway, which has high tire wear as well. And it's a two mile track. So that's what we do. We look at the finishing position of all of these 20 comps, and then you can get a distribution of those 20 finishing positions. You can get a distribution of the number of laps they led in those races, number of fastest laps, and that can inform your distribution there. And it tends to work very well. It's a great way for me to kind of figure out drivers I want to fade or, or go overweight on uh, because they have a, a range of outcomes that people might not be expecting. Okay. Uh, can you talk finally about how to build a portfolio of lineups for GPPs and how to uh, multi-enter those? 
Yeah. Um, so multi-entering is definitely a strategy that can uh, significantly increase your bankroll. If uh, you have a lot of bullets in the chamber to hit a big score, you're more likely to hit the big score than if you have a single lineup. So multi-entering is a thing that people do for sure. And, uh, you know, DraftKings allows you to enter in some contests up to 150 lineups. So how do you manage that? Well, what I really do like to do, again, is think of things in terms of probabilities and percentages. I know if a driver has a 50% chance of being in the winning lineup and he's projected to only be 20% owned, I'm going to want a lot more than 20% ownership of that driver. So when I build my portfolio of lineups, I can use the optimizer to set, maybe I want at least 40% of this driver in my lineup because I know he has a very good chance of being in the winning lineup and he's gonna be underowned. Or conversely, it's usually the other way around. A driver has uh, you know, only like five or 10% ownership projection or sorry, I should say 40 or 50% ownership projection, but only has maybe a 20% chance or 30% chance of being in the winning lineup, and you want to go underweight on that driver, you can either change his total number of points in the optimizer. Like I said, you could reduce his max ownership percentage. You could change his projection uh, to get him into fewer lineups. There's multiple ways to do it in the optimizer, but the idea is that, of course, you want to think of these things in probabilities and percentages and compare them to the field. So just like we talked about with game theory, this is really just game theory on a portfolio level uh, and, and kind of, you know, I've got 100 lineups. I want to get 60 lineups with Trevor Bain in because, you know, I think he's going to be uh, he, at least the upside I give him is a lot better than what uh, I project the, the rest of the market to do in terms of Trevor Bain or vice versa. I want to be underweight on this guy because uh, I project the market is more overconfident in this driver than I am. Okay, so you often talk about two different types of multi-entry strategies, so uh, Game Theory Optimal or GTO, and then Exploitative. Can you talk about the two different strategies uh, and the advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, so when I say I'm thinking of things in percentages, uh, like I said, with ownership percentage, and also probability of being in the winning lineup, this is where I apply either of these two approaches. Game Theory Optimal is essentially what is the optimal portfolio you could have uh, based off of the distribution of these drivers finishing positions or probability of being in the winning lineup. And it kind of ignores the ownership percentage question. It just says if, you know, if Trevor Bain has a 40% chance of being in the winning lineup, get him into 40% of your lineups. If Kyle Busch has a 20% chance of being in the winning lineup, get him in 20% of your lineups. And as close as possible, obviously, because uh, of salaries and things like that. But that's the general idea is you want to get as close to the optimal percentage, optimal mix of drivers and distribution in your portfolio of multi entries, because in the long run, that'll give you the best chance of hitting the winning lineup. And you'll have many of these entries, the ability to do that. So that's kind of the optimal strategy over the long run. It definitely makes you uh, the most money in GPPs. That said, there can be time for exploitative strategies, uh, especially when a field is when, uh, I should say when people are overconfident in something. So for example, in the uh, the qualifier that I won last year, Kyle Larson, I think it was, was in basically every lineup. Um, almost everybody had him in their qualifiers because um, generally people like to be really safe in these, these situations where uh, only one lineup wins. Uh, and Kyle Larson was maybe starting in the back and it was a really long race and he had a lot of opportunity to move forward. I had a very good track for him. So I knew a lot of people were going to have Kyle Larson. Uh, and the game theory optimal approach would be 
play Kyle Larson in 80% of my lineups because there's an 80% chance that he's going to be in the winning lineup. That would be the GTO. However, if he's going to be 90, 95% owned, then every single time that Kyle Larson has a problem, I will probably win the GPP. So I took an exploitative approach and said, I'm only going to play him in two or three of my 10 lineups, you know, 20%, 30%, something like that. I think I should end up only playing him in one lineup out of nine. So it was like 11% on him or something uh, in that particular week. And of course he did have the problem and I easily won the qualifier. Uh, I almost won another qualifier and uh, it was, it was a great race. So there are times for exploitative, not just with qualifiers, but you could also do the same thing in GPPs. If you know, a driver is going to be 70, 80% owned and there's a track where there's a lot of crashes or, or maybe, you know, things can go wrong and you just uh, also, it depends on your risk tolerance. If you have more risk tolerance, you're willing to take a big hit if you're not correct, uh, then you can be more exploitative. So instead of, uh, you know, a driver's 80% owned, but he's only 60% likely or 70% likely to be in the winning lineup, you go 30 or 40%. So instead of playing him in 60 or 70% of your lineups as GTO, you exploit everybody else's overconfidence even further and you go further under your weight on him than optimal. And if there's a problem with that driver, then you're, you, you've faded him in most of your lineups, and that really elevates to you over 80% of the field, and you get a lot better chance of winning. So a lot of it is down to risk tolerance. GP, GTO, Game Theory Optimal, uh, tends to be lower risk tolerance because you're playing closer to optimal. It's kind of the ideal way of building your bankroll through GPPs, uh, whereas exploitative, a riskier approach, but can lead to very big paydays sometimes. Okay, Nick, that was a ton of stuff. Uh, fantastic, fantastic. I think third annual edition of the most important uh, NASCAR episode of the year. Uh, anything else? Um, not a whole lot else. Uh, obviously, I think this was maybe the most in-depth we've done because every year we add new stuff, more stuff. Last year, we didn't have the sim scores you know, to talk about in our most important episode. We didn't talk about GTO or exploitative, so... Hopefully you made it through the episode, picked up a lot of good things, and uh, we are a week away. A uh, couple things I will say. We are going to do a Road of His Live. It's likely that I will do it on Twitch if I can, so follow my Twitter for updates on that. If not, we'll do it as usual, uh, either on YouTube or, or some other way. Um, YouTube changed a little bit the, the requirements for uh, some of the live streaming, so... Trying to figure out a way to do that, but we will definitely have a road of his live show in one way or another. So stay tuned for that for the clash. Uh, and it will be free. It'll be free for the first couple weeks while we figure out what we're doing. Uh, definitely. And then after that, it might go behind the paywall. It might remain free depending on, on what the solution we end up picking is. But uh, we're definitely going to have a road of his live show this week and every week going forward as much as we can. Uh, and we're going to have articles on the clash. We're going to have. Uh, Probably a model. I don't know for sure. Uh, it's kind of hard to model this event in particular, but I will at least give an article with all my thoughts on it, my favorite plays, my favorite pivots and all that stuff. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And of course, Matt, you and I are going to be doing the podcast next week to preview the race, give our picks, uh, at least my picks. I don't know about your picks. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, no one wants my picks. So we will skip that part of the show uh, forever. But that is going to do it for this episode of the NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Kiffin on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in.
Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Factory.